Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is fabulous Fine Woodworking art director Mike Pekovich. Hey, Ed. And, and that's it. That's it, yeah. we have nobody else. Where is Asa this week? Uh, Asa's on vacation. Oh. At the shore. Oh, and Matt is uh, at the shore. Now, what shore? Uh... The shore, the lovely shore of Connecticut. Oh, the Connecticut shoreline. Uh, the Riviera of the Northeast. Well, if anybody Not wants really. to, uh, <laughs> if wants to go looking for Asa, he's got glasses and uh, he's most likely wearing plaid shorts. Um, <laughs> Matt Kenny was going to come on, but Matt is ridiculously busy and behind multiple deadlines for many articles, and uh, I gave him the the week off. So it's just us, Mike. Um, All right. As always, uh, listen, folks. If you really dig this podcast, spread the word to your fellow woodworkers and. Uh, Go ahead over to our iTunes page and leave a comment and uh, maybe a rating. Five stars would be great. Four stars is okay. Uh, even one star is okay if you really hate us. Um, now on to uh, a topic that is uh, going to be raised uh, later on in the show. Um, it's about 85 degrees right now here in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, last week it was about 100. Humidity is probably at about 100%. I'd say it's so raining today. At least. Yeah, it's raining up. So that would mean that there are a whole host of amateur woodworkers out there, myself included, who are in for some nasty, potentially nasty surprises um, in their woodworking projects that they spent all of last winter working on. Yeah, unfortunately, you're in good company, Ed. Um, it's been a brutal summer so far in terms of humidity. Do you have AC? Uh, in my shop. That's it? You have AC in your shop and you don't have it in your house? <laughs> we have a few window units, but not enough to really knock down any humidity in the house, yeah. Your wife must be PO'd. Uh, she comes out and she does her little jazzercise and Zumba exercises in my shop while I'm, uh, you know, doing my woodworking. That's awkward. It's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's we're going to get into wood movement uh, later on. And uh, one more point of interest is um, I don't know what the music's going to be at the time that we release this podcast, but we have new intro music. Oh, cool. Um, because I got uh, several emails and iTunes page comments to the effect that our current intro music, which is also used in the opening segments of our video workshops, has a bit of an adult film feel to it with the wah pedal and the wow, 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 wow. And so... I never thought of it in those terms. Nor did I, yeah. but uh, apparently, uh, literally, d three people uh, do feel that way. Okay, that's enough. That represents a large percentage of our it listening does. audience. That's about 60% of our listeners, I think. Um, so anyhow, let's go into the first question. Uh, Stan wrote in to say, Hey guys, how do you prevent swirl marks when using a random orbit sander? I always seem to end up with swirl marks regardless of the grit used. I don't press down on the sander. I allow the paper to do the work, but swirls still remain. Uh, yeah, hey Stan. Um, good question. There are some... Um, Typical mistakes a lot of folks make using random orbit sanders. Uh, the first you mentioned is um, pressing down too hard. A lot of times we're sanding and I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to give this sander just a little bit of help. And I start bearing down on it. Actually, just let the weight of the sander um, do the job. The second thing uh, we do when we get a little bit impatient, we start moving that sander around a little bit faster than we should. You really want to go... Um, I think the rule of thumb is it should take you about 10 seconds per linear foot as you're moving that sander around. And if you actually give that a shot, it's going to feel really slow. But you have to let those oscillations do their complete little song and dance before you move along. That's going to 
go a long ways towards removing any swirl marks or preventing those from happening. And then... Wait a minute. Can I break in here and ask you a question? Sure. Have you ever been guilty of doing the tilt-a-whirl move? The old... Oh, yeah. You tilt it up on edge. Oh, there's a little burn mark. Yeah, we just get in there and... Yeah, yeah, that's that's mistake number three. Yeah, I thought so. um, So the bottom line is go ahead and sand up through all your grits, but it's not... You're never going to get a... finished quality surface from a random orbit sanders you know ed you pretty much sand up to the finest grit typically up to about 220 or so with your random orbit whatever you end up with um, pick up a piece of sandpaper and a sanding block start at that same grit and just start sanding in line with the grain and really it's the only way to guarantee you're not going to end up with any swirl marks left over from your sanding so uh going back in time here's a question for you from me yeah um you remember the old pad sanders which they still yes. sell. And, yep. you know. Had one. I had a little quarter sheet porter cable. Uh, when, what were the pitfalls of using a pad sander, and when did the random orbits come about? Um, I want to say late 80s the random orbits came around. Pro- yeah, that sounds right. I mean, those little pad sanders, um, they're oscillating, so they right. sort of spin. The pad spins, you know, in in very tight little circle pattern. Much tighter than a random orbit. Right. But the entire thing obviously is not spinning. So you can get pigtails much easier, little swirl marks from the pad sander. The random orbit, you've got that same oscillation. In addition, you have the, the whole orbit, base. The whole base orbits. rotates as well. Right. So you're basically getting a little bit, I guess, more of a complex scratch pattern. So pad sander is probably more of a carpenter's tool. You know, you're, you're kind of feathering in some old paint on your siding and that sort of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I had one and spent a lot of time using it um, in college and out of college. That's what I learned on and really just not an efficient way to sand and not really leaving that smooth of a surface once you spent all that time sanding. So uh, mine sits in the bottom of my, uh, my lower drawer, my workbench, and doesn't come out too often. I don't know if I ever told this story. I don't think I did, but I had one that I inherited from my grandfather. I just found it in my grandmother's basement one day when I was a kid. And uh, it had a you know, a little simple switch on the top, except the little plastic cover, you know, the the switch is essentially a metal post that comes up out of the body of the sander, and it's got a little plastic cover. Well, the plastic cover long ago broken off, probably during the Johnson administration. (laughs) So I plugged it in, and I went to turn it on, and it was (laughs) was the worst experience of my life. The little joy buzzer, you know, the handshake. It was totally a joy buzzer on steroids. All right. Not fun. Um, But uh, anyhow, all right. So basically, you're you're suggesting you follow up with a uh, sanding block. Yes. Okay. Cool. And oh, you know what? There's a good tip here too. Uh, the way we make sanding blocks here is we usually take scraps of plywood and glue on cork on the bottom. Yeah. And the thing is, yeah. So you get a bigger piece of plywood, a big old piece of cork, you can buy a staples and a roll or something like that. Um, yeah. So I glue it up um, in a fairly decent sized sheet and then cut that into squares. And then you have a whole bunch of sanding blocks. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Well. Next question is from Ted, and Ted writes, I've learned about quarter sawn wood by looking at and reading about arts and crafts furniture, which, if I'm right, means that the grain runs from the top to the bottom of the board, or more or less so. In a rift sawn board, the grain runs more or less diagonally, and in a flat sawn board, the grain runs across the board. So at the lumberyard, apparently, I can ask for quarter sawn oak, but if I want the same configuration in fir, I have to ask for vertical grain. Is there some subtle difference, or is it just that fir doesn't like to be called quarter sawn and oak doesn't mind? Thanks for taking the time to help a newbie catch up. That's true. I never thought about that. I guess oak is a little more easygoing than 
vertical more, grain. You dug feel through. it's more relaxed. I, so I feel so. it has a harder edge. <laughs> it's true. There, there are two different ways of saying the same thing. Um, I guess the bottom line is if the guy at the lumber yard knows what quarter sawn oak is and knows what vertical grain dug fir is, don't don't go stirring up that that hornet's nest by referring to it as quarter sawn Douglas fir because they may look at you askance. Let's let's do a little role playing here. Okay. All right. So so let's say you're the guy at the lumber yard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I am um I'm me. Okay. Um, and sometimes I'm known to be a smart ass, and so okay. Uh, so hey, um, how you doing? Uh, I'm looking for some quarter sawn fur. Uh, yeah. Uh, we don't have anything like that. What do you mean you don't have anything like that? Uh, I don't know what you, we got quarter sawn oak. Yeah, you got quarter sawn oak. I, I, I can yeah. see some fur over here. I'm looking at the end grain here. It looks like it's going straight up and down yeah, that, on the end grain th there. that'd be your vertical grain dug fur. We got plenty of that. Right, that's quarter sawn. Uh, no, quarter sawn is oak. All right, listen. You work at a lumber yard? Yes, I do. Okay, and you don't know what you're talking about? Uh, quarter, sawn, quarter sawn is a type of oak. Okay. Okay? All right. No, wait, it's the way you cut it. Uh, what are you looking for again? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you might want to just cut that part out. I don't know. Our guy, well, our guy would probably get really testy with us. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Our lumber guy. Sure. Let's say you're looking for quarter sun oak instead of vertical grain dug fur. Okay. Um, speaking of the testy guy smoking cigarettes, standing by the running forklift while you're trying to sort through your quarter And the 55-gallon drum of gas. Right. So, um, what I like to do, because I'm often buying quarter sun white oak, um, is instead of sorting through an entire pile while the guy's waiting for you, take a look at the end grain of the, especially if it's a big old pallet of wood, um, mm -hmm. take a look at the end grain. And it's pretty easy to tell by the end grain if your, if the grain of the wood is truly quarter sawn running really perpendicular to the face of the board, because if it's off even by a few degrees, it really affects the ray flight. The ray flight almost just disappears. So you can pretty much just by checking out the end grain of the oak, identify which boards in the stack are probably going to be a pretty good bet about having their really awesome ray flack mm -hmm. and just, you know. Take your pencil and mark the end grain so you know where to go. Yeah, just take a beeline right to those guys. Say, I need to go about five boards down, two boards over. Let's take a look at that one. Saves you a lot of time and you can really cherry pick a big pile of wood and get the best boards pretty quick. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I, uh, I say we move on to segment one of the day. It's called uh, Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we admit to our most recent boneheaded blunders in the workshop, uh, of which we have uh, several today, uh, all humidity-themed. Yes. So um, who do you want to go first, Mike? Uh, go ahead. Since... All right. Uh, I've actually, I've got two, um, two smooth moves. <laughs> That'll make up for the missing third party in this podcast. So um, first one, and, and this all came about, with this first item came about because I recently moved into my new house, okay? And I was in an apartment, and that apartment had central AC. Okay. And my house does not have AC. So I had built about two years ago a six-foot-long credenza-style entertainment center. It was very nice. It's really nice. I love it. Um, it I, I had, you know, all the doors fit perfectly. I got nice even reveals all around, you know. And I never had a single problem with it in my mm -hmm. apartment. Nothing. Beautiful. I moved into my new house, and within a week, everything went, whoosh, and I couldn't close any of the doors anymore. Well, I that's literally cool. Just give, close. give the doors a little bit of plane, and you're good to go. A little bit of planing? Yeah. Well, okay, well, that gets complicated because 
The whole bottom of the cabinet was finished in this really nice, distressed, antique-looking milk paint finish where I put red, and then I put black over oh, okay. it, and I sanded through, and then I put linseed oil, and it was kind of labor-intensive, and I don't have any more milk paint. And on one of the doors, I had a mortised lock set, which if you plane the edge of the door that uh, meets the uh, the vertical piece next to it, the partition between the next door, right? Uh, now the little platen... Uh, on the edge of your door, if you've planed that, all that wood away, now that's sticking out. So that's I had true. to remortise everything. Then the problem becomes, well, now the keyhole is off center. Well, the keyhole, I think it'll be enough. I've got enough wiggle room in there; it'll be all okay. Right. But all my screw holes. Oh. And if you look at the back of this, uh, I'll put a picture of this online. But if you look at the back of this lock set, um, there's not a lot of extra area, you know, meat for your screws to bite into. Right. So, because you I, uh, have the deeper mortise for that, I guess the mechanism, mechanism itself, yep. right? So, I had to, um, in so a couple cases, I was able to just drill holes and then bang in plugs. Okay. That I cut with a plug cutter. That worked. But for the other two holes, there was, there was just no meat, not enough meat around the original screw holes to drill, you know, to get a drill to, to catch correctly and not wander out of the, right. the hole. So, I had to take a chisel and carefully excise. You know, a 90-degree corner, and then I i don't know if it was going to work or not. I epoxied in because I figured I needed something that was going to fill a little bit. Yeah. I epoxied in some blocks, and uh, I'm hoping this will uh, this will work. I think it will. Wow. But it was a bloody nightmare because uh, I'm getting ready to sell this piece because uh, it doesn't fit in my new home. <laughs> uh, so that was mistake number one. I yeah. didn't—I think the lesson learned is that um, I built it for a climate-controlled environment, and maybe the lesson is that you should build it for any environment. That's a good lesson, especially, well, I mean, I learned that lesson living in California where wood movement is more theory than reality because the humidity changes on a seasonal basis are almost nil, especially if you live near the coast. So, yeah, I learned about seasonal movement. It's like, yeah, that's one of those things where technically you should do something about, but practically you don't really have to worry about it. Until I moved to Connecticut, you know, with the heating and the cooling yeah. and the humidity and, and uh, everything started sort of exploding on me. And I uh, I learned about seasonal mov Jeez. movement in a painful and, and very rapid way. So, oh. yeah, I take it seriously ever since then. And um, But you had yet one I had more. another one. Okay. And this one is killing me because I don't understand how this could have happened. I built a, uh, and you saw it, it's a cherry, yeah. it's a little cherry cabinet. It looks kind of like the one that Matthew Teague did for the mag, I think it was Teague, right? A while yes, ago, the wall cabinet with ago. the door and the drawer inside. Similar to that, uh, I, I changed it up a bit. I made a um, so the back is set into um, uh, you know grooves, and uh, it's a solid pine back that I kind of fashioned to look like shiplap, like it was a shiplap back. I made some kerf cuts in it and did whatever, um, and I gave it. An eighth of an inch to expand in the groove on either side. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it has a quarter inch that it can expand. That should be plenty. That's what I th think. That's what I thought. Over what, about 14 inches or so? so yeah, about okay. 14 inches wide. So I had built this in the in the winter, late winter, and it's been sitting here waiting for me to put a finish on it. And I checked in on it uh, yesterday, mm. and I noticed that, um, huh, one of my... The back corner of one of my dovetails seems to have, I guess I didn't get it glued in properly. It's its kind of like separated a bit. That's weird. Let's, let's take a look at this, see if I can. F oh, wait a minute. There's, the other one is, so all four corners at the back, the dovetails have 
broken apart. The pins that wow. pinned the the shelves have have you know are now recessed. Um, it's a nightmare because now I got to rab it out the back to get lift the back out and right. then plane the back even more. But it expanded more than a quarter of an inch. That's amazing. This is a dovetailed cherry case, and that pine back isn't that thick. What is it about a quarter of an inch? Quarter of an inch. So it's a quarter inch thick piece of pine. So you'd think, well, maybe it would compress even if it's sort of yeah. bottomed out in those grooves, but no, it just just opened those joints right up. I did something. I mean, I did something wrong. I, I just don't. I mean, I I still to this day feel like a quarter inch is. I don't know. Feels like that should be plenty. Yeah, I don't know. Mike is falling silent. No, I'm just thinking. I would think a quarter inch is plenty. So I think you have to wait till next winter, remeasure it, because I want to really make sure that you gave it a quarter of an inch. Uh, you think I may have... Well, this is my problem, because mm-hmm. I had the same thing. Typically, I, I from experience, unfortunately, um, I now really try to size doors and drawers with humidity and season in mind. If I'm building in the winter, I'll make them really small. As a woodworker, sometimes it's really hard to leave... The gap you should because, you know, you're doing this this nice inset door and all your reveals are really tight and clean and, you know, a sixteenth of an inch looks so nice. Do I really want to go an eighth of an inch? It's yeah. like, no, this is fine. So for me, it's sort of like as much as I, as I try to leave the gaps I should, sometimes they're maybe a little tighter than they need to be. And I just did this little arts and crafts piece with yep. a door Here's and a your drawer. Smooth move. And, um, you know, you go to open the door, ain't going anywhere. You go to open the drawer and they're both just stuck solid. And, okay, that's fine. I can live with this. It's a piece for my house. Fortunately, it wasn't for a client or anything. It's in my own house stuck. I'll just wait for six months. I'll open it up, plane everything down, call it good. Um, this particular piece I actually taught as a class. So my fear is there are eight more of these oh. things, you know, around the state that are frozen solid Ooh. too. So, um if you're out there in the class and everything's stuck solid, don't worry about it. Wait for the humidity to go down. They'll open back up, plane it down. But, you know, again, it's one of those things where it's bad enough when it's something you've done yourself. But if it's maybe a mistake that you help to perpetrate on others as well, that sucks. There's a certain point, though, where you can't plan for every contingency. You just can't. Yeah. Or maybe I'm, that's a cop-out. You know? I know. I'm. I'm. I think it's sort of like, uh, sort of like Hurricane Sandy. It's just like this is like the humidity hurricane of 2013, and it's never going to be this humid for this long again in Connecticut. So don't worry about it. All right. Well, what are the so what are the basic guidelines that you would give people for, for example, you know, uh, drawer fronts and sides to keep them from, you know, how much, how much reveal do you want? Let's take this component by component, like drawer fronts and sides. How much space should you have? between drawer front side to side the drawer should not move side to side no but period up and down top to bottom depends on how high the drawer is okay um i mean a rule of thumb is if it's let's say three inches around three inches or so i would give it 16th of an inch top Hmm. to bottom okay um you start to get up to six or eight inches high and you start thinking about eighth of an inch okay and anything more than that, well, you kind of do the math from there. Yeah. So I guess about a sixteenth of an inch per every three inches, depending on the species. Uh, grain orientation, uh, flat sawn stock is going to move more seasonally than quarter sawn stock. Um, 
you know, pine is maple's going to move more than mahogany is going to move. There's, there's maybe that was my problem with that cabinet back because that was just flats on. I think that back is just flats on. Yeah, flats so on pine is going to move quite a bit. There's a lot of online um, resources for seasonal wood movement. Just Google it, find some stuff. Veritas sells this little, um, this little wheel guide oh, yeah. that where you can dial in your wood species and come up with some calculations on there. And I used to think that that wheel guide was actually a little conservative and you ended up with bigger gaps than necessary. Now I'm starting to rethink it. Maybe they actually know what they're doing, but that's not a good way. Uh, that's a good way to go. I know Chris Bexford uses that and recommends using that. How about the, um, how about cabinet doors? Is it, is it similar? Like, okay, let's see, you've got three inch wide rails and styles. Um, you want, a sixteenth well, inch. Yeah, I mean, general rule of thumb when you're fitting a door is you want a dime gap top and bottom, okay. and a nip, nickel gap side to side. So roughly eighth of an inch side to side, sixteenth of an inch top to bottom. Hmm. And um, typically that works pretty well. Unfortunately, I may have cut that a little bit too close in my recent work. And basically, if you own it, it's no big deal. Build it. If it gets stuck in the winter time, shave it down till it's good, and it probably won't ever be a problem again. The problem is when it's going off to someone else's house. So I'll actually, um, I did a big built-in piece with, I don't know, it had like six or eight doors and about 15 drawers Oof. and everything was painted. Oh, um, I remember this project. So yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, uh, paint's even worse because you have to leave bigger gaps. And last summer when it started to get humid, I called them up. I said, you got any doors or drawers sticking? And sure enough, they had one or two drawers sticking. So I went ahead and fixed that right away. And it's funny when Mike, people with the customer service. Well, nice. you know, yeah, you don't want people living with this stuff that just isn't working right. Yeah. So anyway, it's it probably it's probably easiest to build furniture in the summer for that reason, because you're at your you know in the big. middle of summer you're at your biggest, widest point of expansion. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, build everything just tight. There you go. Oh, the problem there is if you're doing, uh, let's say, frame and panel doors and you have a nice finish on everything, mm -hmm. if you don't oh. pre-finish your panels or pre-paint your panels, the panels shrink, all of a sudden you have that. You have that little line of unfinished wood next to the finished. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back into the questions. Nicholas wrote, my question relates to achieving accurate measurements. I have 6 and 12-inch steel rulers that are great for measuring short spans. I'd like to know how the pros make an accurate cut that is longer than a 12-inch ruler. My current measuring tape doesn't offer the accuracy I need. Thanks. Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, Don't well, measure everything. Well, I mean, I have, uh, it's nice to have a, a 24 inch or even a 36 inch steel rule around. That's not a bad thing to have. Mm -hmm. um, I think a bigger question is, um, I mean, accuracy is really, really important in woodworking, but a lot of times you can get very accurate, um, sort of by actually working around measuring things. I mean, if you're building a case and you need to fit something, a component between say your uprights or something like that, rather than measure that dimension, transfer that to a board, cut it and hope you're getting close. Um, just go ahead and stick the board up, scribe it and give it a cut or take two sticks and slide them together until the ends butt up to that dimension. And now you have sort of a hard dimension. And if you're doing multiples, instead of measuring out each piece, use a stop block on your crosscut sled or something like that. Uh, look for some sort of mechanical means either to transfer a mark uh, to give you the dimension you want or uh, to set up stops for repeatable cuts without having to measure each one. Um, 
really sort of, uh, it's one thing that uh, professional furniture makers, that's a funny thing about the magazine. My job as a yard director is to come up with all those great dimensions and the exploded drawings for people to follow when they're, when they're building which, a piece of furniture. Which you're not supposed to follow slavishly. Well, I mean, the problem in getting those dimensions is that the professional maker who made the piece in the first place didn't actually know those dimensions necessarily or need all those dimensions to make it. They said, well, you know, I, I kind of knew the basic dimension of the tabletop and the distance between the legs and the aprons. But then from there, all my dimensions came from working, you know, from that piece. So um, it's a good rule of thumb. And uh, it's measuring from reality is how Bob Van Dyke always refers to it. It's well put. Yeah. And I, I think there's a good, the good example for, uh, for Nicholas, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is um, so sometimes uh, when I'm really lazy and I'm doing a, a drawer back, uh, yeah. I'll just uh, put a, a dado in the back end of each drawer, drawer side, you know, maybe, a, I don't know, starting a half inch in from the end, and then I'll slide in a drawer back. Okay. So usually the way I measure for that back piece is I'll hold a piece of wood with one square end. I'll hold a square end into the bottom of one, you know, dado. Okay. And then where it lines up with the bottom of the opposite dado, I make my little tick mark. Okay, oh. that's where I, that's where I cut it. There you go. Right. So there's no measuring involved. Right. Um, all right. Well, uh, next question is from Lewis, and uh, Lewis wrote, "Hello from Bristol, UK. Um, I'm looking to build a desk all in American white oak. It will have a big flat white top with angular trestle legs with a small draw in cost." with a small drawer in contrasting shade as close to black as possible. Fuming with ammonia would work, as, of course, would staining. I saw a beautiful piece which was charred with a plumber's blowtorch. Can you give any advice on these methods or uh, or any ideas that I might have missed? So he's trying to add some color to oak, and he's mentioning a plumber's blowtorch. Wow. Why don't we um, look for some alternatives other than blowtorch? <laughs> I don't know. It sounds really fun. Uh, um, well, one thing, I'm not sure that fuming is going to get black black. I mean, I, right. I've fumed a lot. I've um, I've never getting, been able to get past a, a nice dark brown, certainly not close to black. Um, one way you can get black in oak or any wood with a lot of tannins in it is get some vinegar, tear up some steel wool, throw it in a jar with some vinegar on there. If you put the lid on, put it on loose or punch some holes in it because you're going to be creating, I guess as you create hydrogen as the thing does its stuff. But basically let this mixture sit around for about a week or so and then just paint it on the oak with a uh, foam brush or something. Let it sit on there for about 30 minutes. Weenie roller. I don't oh, know. no, 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 no. Foam brush. Never mind. I just I wanted to say weenie roller. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me regather my thoughts here. And that solution will, that iron uh, in the solution will react with the tannins in the yolk and will get everything pretty close to a black. Right. When it dries, it's going to look kind of gray and punky and, and not that great. But when you top coat it with a clear coat, you should have a pretty nice, rich, deep black. And if you are going black, black, and you really want serious black, I would probably combine a dye with a followed by a black stain. 
Um, the thing is, the dye is going to color the wood itself, but uh, because of the capillary action and the pores and all that good kind of stuff, sometimes it's hard to get the dye into those big open pores, the white oak, and it leaves little white pores. So you follow that up with a black pigment stain, which will lodge in those pores. You sort of double up on the black and then top coat that if, you're, if that's really what you're looking for. But try the steel wool in the vinegar and see if that works. And do it on a test board first. I was, I was going to suggest yeah. that, a test board from the wood that you used on yeah. your project. By the way, Lewis, um, since, oh, here it comes. since you are from the UK, if you're ever looking to trade some gorgeous American white oak for some English brown oak, I would be up for that. I've got some beautiful white pine you might be interested in. Uh, maybe. I don't oh, know. okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Segment two this week. Wait for it is going to be all-time favorite technique of all time, where fine woodworking editors dream lazily in the summer sunshine of glorious woodworking techniques destined for the annals of history. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I had a note near in my outline, Mike interrupts Ed, but I thought that was kind of lame, so I didn't tell you about that beforehand, Mike. Oh, okay. Um, so all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, Mike. What do you have? Uh, well, I was going to have you go first because I forgot first? mine. Um, so, okay. yeah, go ahead and I'll... Uh, do you remember? Because I can, I can refresh your memory. I did now. Okay. I just saw your note here. It says blocks and that... Uh, all right. Well, I'll, I'll go first. Mine is... It's sort of woodworking related and sort of not. Okay. So, um, as uh, you know, I have a new house and I went and uh, I have an old uh, Scandia wood stove... Uh, that I've been saving for years, waiting to repaint it and install. And now I've got the house to install it in. So I installed it, and uh, I wanted to spark up a fire just quickly. And I, you know, it's summer, but I wanted to make sure everything was working okay. Right. And so I was looking for tinder. And it just so happened that I had been working on replaning and refitting all of my doors on my entertainment center that had swollen. And I had all these beautiful curls of poplar shavings. Okay. So I just took all those awesome shavings, put them under my you know, my uh, uh, little pieces of scrap wood to start the fire, lit those, boom. So I, you know, this morning I got into work because I realized that, man, my hand plane shavings are awesome tinder. Um, I've got a little box at home now, and I came to work and stole all the hand plane shavings from the till in the back of the bench in the bench room, and uh, that's all my tinder. And I just thought it was a really cool little trick. I mean, if, you, if you're making lots of shavings. Very it's, cool. It's nice to save your, you know. Use as much of the tree as you can. Yeah, for something. So now the shavings, you know, they're they're sort of fluffy. They take up a lot of space. Have you do you like stamp them down? Do you leave them nice and? I don't fluffy? have that many yet, but I think right. you want to leave them fluffy because you want air to circulate. Yeah, amid the tinder. So I, you know, I've got a big, I don't know, twenty inch by twenty inch footprint box that's about eh, a foot and a half high. I can fill that with cool. a lot of fluffy, fluffy shavings. Um, so. Just wait till your daughter gets in there and throws it all over the living room floor. It might be the last time. Uh, oh, I'm going <laughs> the through shavings get in the house. I'm going through the terrible twos right now, so that would not surprise me at all. <laughs> I'm so tired because everything. I'll, and I won't go into the weeds too long in this, but I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to the show that will understand this. And please feel free to send your comments of support. But it's like everything is a negotiation now. Everything has to be a negotiation. And then there's the the no statement which is delivered very emphatically, the, no! And it's like, oh, God, it just grates on me. And I'm just so tired and beaten down. I can't, anyhow, let me compose myself. All right, you okay? I'm okay. All right. All right, so your all-time favorite technique of all time involves blocks and glue and something else. I can't quite remember. 
Uh, yes, I sort of stumbled on this, and it, it actually worked out really well. I'm making, uh, I'm doing a, a furniture piece with some uh, arched aprons to it. So I had these big, long curves, and I got out my router and a circle template jig thing, you know, the big kind of trammel arm thing, and I, yep. and I routed these perfect arcs. And now I have this template that I turned into a... Um, a jig to then go ahead and mount the workpiece and then uh, route it with a flush trim bit. Check. Okay. So I have some blocks that I need to glue to my nice template in order to register the workpiece. And some other blocks I need to glue down and screw them in order to mount my Disteco, my hold down clamps yep. to hold the piece on. So I have these blocks and especially these end blocks that register against the tenons of the piece. These have to be really accurately located. So when I put the workpiece in, it's going to route my curve exactly where I want it to route. Okay. Fair enough. So I have my blocks on there. They're where I want them, but it's one of those things where, you know, the reality is more difficult than the concept. Concept is, oh, I'm going to glue it right there. But, you know, you put the white, the yellow glue on, you clamp it down, they're going to squish around. Or uh, maybe I could clamp it in place and hopefully they're not going to move and I can screw it from the other side, then glue it, then screw it in place, all this stuff. So I said, wait a minute. The blocks are already exactly where I want them. What if I take some cyanoacrylate glue, my super glue, hold the block down and just sort of kind of outline the block in place with the super glue and maybe it'll wick in. And it wicked in perfectly. And then I got my can of accelerator and I sprayed it on the Wasp block. Wasp killer. Wasp killer, same Smells stuff. like. Yes. Um, and it just set it right up and it held the blocks perfectly in place without the normal squishing around from the yellow glue or the clamps. And it secured them well enough to where I was able to flip it over. I can drill it from the backside, attach my screws, and now they're rock solid and the blocks are perfectly registered. So it's definitely something I'm going to try in the future. It worked out really well. That's the cool thing about CA glue. Um, I know that Tight Bond makes, uh, not a sponsor, uh, makes... <laughs> three varieties so they make a thin like low viscosity and yes. then they make like a medium and then a like a, a thick higher viscosity glue so depending on what you need it to do um it's quite you know it's quite handy so you know you use the thin stuff in your case you want it to wick in right um i i don't know if a would a ca be at all decent in the thicker form as a slight gap filler very slight or is that not a good idea? Yeah, Go to epoxy. I don't know. I mean, there's a difference between uh, something that's gap filling uh, versus something that remains structurally sound. Right. Um, for instance, uh, that the foamy, the polyurethane glue will foam up and fill a gap. Mm. But if the surfaces aren't mating, it's not structurally sound. Whereas epoxy will fill a gap and create a structurally sound mm. joint. They're two different things. But um, the key with the uh, so, you know, acrylate, especially the thin stuff that wicks into wood, is the wood absorbs so much glue that it really takes a while for that glue to set up. And the accelerator stuff, that's the key. Grab some of that if you've never used it. It just sets up the glue instantaneously. And I use it a lot if I get a little chip out um, on parts and pieces. You just sort of hold it in place with the tip of a pencil, a little bit of glue, hit it with the accelerator, done, dry, and you scrape it flush and keep on working. Nice. Love it. All right. Well, uh, let's move on to another question from Steve and Steve wrote, love the show. I have a question about mixing shellac flakes and more specifically about measuring by volume in the July, August, 2013 issue of fine woodworking. Mario Rodriguez states that if you don't have a scale, you can measure by volume with one ounce being roughly equal to an eighth cup. 
This was the first time I've tried mixing my own shellac flakes. So I measured out one cup of alcohol and estimated an eighth cup. Um, basically, he had a, a quarter cup uh, measuring cup, so he you know he estimated half of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also made a two pound cut using the same method. However, after applying one coat of the one pound cut and two coats of the two pound cut on my cherry door panel, I had almost zero build. So I knew something was wrong. Additionally, I had only purchased eight ounces of flakes and barely used any of it. Hmm. I remeasured using my kitchen scale and found that one ounce of flakes was essentially a third of a cup, not an eighth of a cup. I assume that this is because I used flakes and not ground flakes. Mario doesn't specify, but I have to assume he meant one ounce of ground flakes is roughly equal to an eighth cup by volume. What did I do wrong? And I know you have a a good answer, but I wanted to, I was thinking about this last night, Mike, Mm -hmm. after our meeting yesterday, our pre-show meeting. And I, I think he's onto something when he says that, you know, I assume it's because he didn't use ground flakes, right? Because if, if they're just the raw flakes, mm-hmm. when you pour it into something to measure, they're big, chunky flakes, and you're going to have air spaces in between each flake. So your measurement by volume might not be as accurate. Whereas if they're ground, yes. all those particles are going to meet more tightly. Sure. And you're going to get a more accurate measurement. I think there's definitely something to that. Here's the thing that sort of threw me for a loop is um, I just taught a finishing class and one of the things I covered was shellac. And it was actually after Mario's article came out and I used his uh, measuring method. And so I had 10 or 15 guys mixing up shellac, basically an ounce of flakes to four ounces of alcohol to give you a two pound cut. And for the most part, it was, it felt like a two pound cut. So I was trying to think okay and these were flakes too these weren't ground up mm-hmm. um the only thing i can think of is that what we did is i had little um <clears throat> little canning jars marked with your little ounce marks you know and so we filled it up to about the one ounce mark with flakes and most guys were a little generous maybe went a little above that so maybe there's some margin for error right there the second thing is the first thing we did was we put in the flakes and then we filled up the jar with alcohol to the four line. So oh, okay. really we're actually putting in less than four ounces of alcohol because we already have those flakes mm-hmm. in there taking up roughly an ounce of space, maybe a little bit less when you factor in all the air between the flakes and that kind of stuff. So that might be one thing is if you're actually adding eight ounces of alcohol to your one ounce of flakes, it might be giving you more alcohol per flakage than, um, than you want. But here's the thing. Uh, you asked what did you did wrong? Didn't do anything wrong. Um, what you did right was you mixed up a batch. You gave it a shot. Not enough build. Must not have enough shellac flakes. That's, that's more. sort of exactly it. When you're working with shellac, it's sort of um, you start to get a feel for what your cut or what your ratio of shellac to alcohol is when you mix up a batch. And typically what I do, because when I'm going through shellac, quite a bit and I don't want to sit and mix a batch of shellac every time I want to use it. What I'll, I'll do is I'll take a jar, I'll fill it to the top with flakes, and then I'll fill it up to the top of the flakes with alcohol. Basically, I'm creating this sludge. It's like thick, mm-hmm. thick honey or maple syrup shellac. It's a cut which is way, way too heavy to use. But I'll just siphon that off because a lot of the gunk and stuff floats down to the mm-hmm. bottom. So instead of straining all the stuff off, I grab my wife's turkey baster, which now oh, that's good. lives in the shop full time. You just uh, skim the stuff off the top, the clean stuff off the top into a clean jar and then add some alcohol to that. Usually, a little trial and error here. A little trial and error. Usually it's about, you know, I'll put in one part 
of this thick stuff and then maybe double that with alcohol. Yeah. Give it a shot. If you swipe it on and you're not getting a build, I'll put more shellac in there. If I'm putting it on and it stays kind of streaky and it doesn't dry hard and gets kind of drippy and gunky, then that just means your cut's a little bit too heavy. Add a little uh, alcohol to that until it's good. And pretty soon you get a feel for the cut that you want depending on on how you're using the shellac. So, um, you know, the best thing to do is use it enough to get a sense of kind of what works for you, get a feel for it, and then adjust as necessary. Right on. Um, well, before I, I go on to the next uh, segment, I um, it just occurred to me it was kind of an interesting topic of conversation because um, we were talking about fur earlier and straight vertical grain and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I'm uh, getting ready to replace the header over my garage door. And the present header mm. is a piece of 4 by 8 or it might even be more like 4 by 10 uh, Doug fur. Um, the house was built in 1900. Wow. So I took a block plane and I planed a bit off to see what I was dealing with. And it's beautiful, straight grain, tight lines, yeah. like old growth stuff, you know? Nice. So I'm planning. My wife wants me to build her a, a new dining room table and she wants sort of a rustic feel. And I'm thinking of maybe using those. I mean, it's a 16 foot long beam. Okay. So you can get legs or something. Maybe the whole top. Maybe. I'm trying to figure out if I can get you know, a top that comes in at, you know, an inch thick, maybe a little more, something kind of beefy. If you can get like three, say three thicknesses out of the board. Right. Times two, that's six times how, what is this, 10 inches? Eight to 10, yeah. Okay. So you got, that should be, you get plenty of width out of there. That'd be oh, nice. Be awesome. Or keep it big and beefy and do like a big old base. PV base for it. That'd yeah. be nice too. So we'll see. It's kind of, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm getting really into this idea of, um, being very frugal and using every bit of wood that I can and every stick of it. And, uh, I know it sounds a little lame, but, uh, it's this idea of trying to respect the, the, uh, this really does sound lame, but it is sort of trying to respect the wood that you're cutting down and using to build furniture and, um, trying to get the most out of it, I guess. But, um, I don't yeah. know. It's just kind of interesting. Uh, anyhow. Uh, well, I mean, I yeah. don't think that's lame at all. In fact, I think, you know, I mean, we live sort of out in the woods of Connecticut. I mean, we're, surrounded by a vast hardwood forest. Like in California, if you had a vacant lot and you didn't mow it or do anything to it, you'd grow tumbleweeds. In Connecticut, if you have a vacant lot and you don't mow it, you grow maple trees. I mean, it's so, you know, the notion for us to, you know, you think about, you know, thinking local in terms of lumber, the idea you have a storm fell tree, you have a sawyer, cut it up and stack it. That's kind of the the uh, suburban version of, of sort of thinking green about lumber. And I know yeah. a lot of folks working in New York and more urban areas, it's sort of the reclaimed lumber is their local version of thinking green about lumber. Sure. So I think that's a, a huge thing. You see a lot of folks in, in Brooklyn, furniture makers who are using old floors, old uh, architectural lumber and that kind of stuff. So I think you're right there, man. Cool. Well, um, we, we uh, what's that? Oh, okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store, as well as through email, and every week I like to read a few of those comments. So here we go. Headpawn wrote in to say, wow, how did I miss this? I buy your magazine off the stand fairly regularly. I recalled a podcast being mentioned in an issue and gave it a try. Listened to the first few episodes and was hooked. Next thing you know, whammo, I downloaded all your episodes to my iPad. 
highest quality information like everything from the Taunton Press Woodworking brand, you guys are tempting me to subscribe to your online services. And no, Mike, I know you're going to ask, I did not write this comment. No, can you imagine, you know, someone who's downloaded all these podcasts and you're like blasting them like tunes in your car. And then like you're, you're giving someone a ride in your car and they're like, what do you listen to? <laughs> totally, totally. Lame. Um, Is this like Adam Carolla? No, no. it's not. Uh, Iowa City Woodworker wrote, top-notch work all around. I loved everything about this podcast, even the sound effects. I can't believe people complained early on in the process. I eagerly await each episode when I mow the lawn, work in the shop, or drive the car. Five stars for entertainment value, five stars for woodworking expertise, and five stars for promoting the craft. Three stars, however, for frequency. Come on, Taunton. It's time to get ready to step up to the big podcast stage. I'm ready for weekly episodes. Thanks for all you guys do. And finally, from TN Tarantino. TN Tarantino? Got it. It's nice. Yes. Uh, TN Tarantino wrote in to say, Great podcast that strikes the perfect balance between informative and entertaining. A great resource for the minutia of the craft presented by people who don't take themselves too seriously. That combo gives courage to those of us aspiring to push our limits and delve deeper into the realm. It makes me wonder, do we still have that that uh, uh, feeling by a lot of people that uh, we're up in an ivory tower? Um, I, I, I gather that years ago people felt that uh, some of the fine woodworking you know, writers or staff or whoever was, we were a bit full of ourselves or something. Well, we are. We just we are? try not to communicate that through the podcast. Oh, oh this is all an act. It's more private. Oh. I hope not. I mean, yeah, unfortunately you get to see the, the raw, ugly truth of things in the podcast. So I think if that was our cover, we'd blown it. So... Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on July 26th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes or stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com. Cheers, everybody. I just want to say weenie roller. Sorry. Sorry.